I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we have with us today Emily Rose Brown. And Emily is the Partnerships Manager of South Australia for the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife. Hello, Emily. G'day, how are you? <laughs> I'm very well. Um, I always like to make sure I've got your title correct. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Sometimes I, I get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife, Emily. Mm-hmm. Who are they? Who are we? So we are a uh, not-for-profit, non-government organisation, and we specialise in raising money to help save species, create national parks, add to national parks, um, and fund projects that are along those sort of lines. So we've been around since 1970, so a year after the first national park was created here in Australia. Is that Belair National Park? Not 100% sure. Or is Belair the second? It was one of the first or second. One of the first ones, yeah. Yeah. Should know. I should Google that, shouldn't I? It's the South Australian (laughs) National Park of the Month this month. Belair is? Yes. Is that right? Yes. We should all know that. I love love Belair National Park. (laughs) Congratulations, Belair National Park. (laughs) Big shout out. Okay. Hmm. And and um, and the month, of course, is Sober October. Steve sober and I are doing October. Sober October. <laughs> Just before. Can't remember November. That's, that's the one. Mm. And the end of December. So, we're, uh, <laughs> so we may release this later on. That's why I thought yes, I'd mention yeah. that. Now, that's super important work that you do. Um, I, I love hearing about I, I'll be completely honest. I only heard about your organisation when we met um, a couple of months ago. We were, we were filming together, filming a... Uh, with the Bandicoot talking about the Bandicoot bungalows, mm, yep. and 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 I, and and I've I've looked you up on a lot, and I've I've learnt a little bit about what you do, and I thought it'd be great to have you on the show to explain to our listeners that may not have heard of you guys, um, more about what you do. Yeah. Okay. So one of the biggest things that we've done in the last six months since I've joined the the team is we have added. 200 and I think it's 29 hectares to the Wimagama National Park in New South Wales. So to do that we had to raise about $300,000, it was $1,000 per hectare sort of thing Um, and we managed to do that. We actually raised a little bit more than that I think so that's money that's going to go towards planting trees in that park or revegetating or something like that. And so this month in October it's about to be gazetted so that means it's going to be announced um, to everybody to say, hey, it's actually happening, we've done it, congratulations. So, yeah. That's exciting. People need that good news because we, we always see land degradation and the government are chopping down this old growth heritage area and all these negative things are happening and it's just your organisation allows people, the average person, to be part of something that's actually doing something positive. Hmm. How yeah. exciting. It's lots of, lots of fun and so... Through grants that we've done in the past as well, um, we've given money to the Department of Environment and Water here in South Australia, and they brought back to our attention in the last couple of months that actually we're about to announce this. Um, So we've got um, a piece of land that's being added to one of the wilderness parks in Kangaroo Island. We've got an island that's being purchased up in the Riverland to be part of the Murray River National Park. So we've got lots of really cool, fun, exciting things happening, but... We're just waiting for everybody else to catch up so that we can start talking about them a bit more. So, oh, cutting yeah. edge. Wow, that's exciting. How, how do you raise the funds to, to buy these things? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we run appeals every uh, about a quarter, of the, so every four months or so. 
Um, so at the moment our appeal is to, it's actually split, so we're raising money for quolls in New South Wales, Victoria, I mean New South Wales, Queensland, sorry, um, and then for the eastern and southern states we're raising money towards southern brown bandicoots and Moriva turtles to fund the two projects that we're working on here in South Australia of course. So um, we put it out to all of our current donors, we get it out as far and wide as we can, we come and talk to people like you, um, I've been to the World Environment Fair back in June here in Adelaide so yeah it's just all about getting out there like you guys do. So Good stuff, we were at said World Environment we Fair. We were there. Yeah, what a great, great yeah. expo! If, if we met you, then we would have interviewed <laughs> you right there. We, we did three interviews from the World Environment. It was a good, 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 uh, good event. Yeah, um, that's great. That's fantastic. I love that. So, so your what's a what's a day look like for you? What 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 do you, what's your day involve? Uh, like everybody in this day and age, it's a lot of emails, I guess. Um, but for me, I love getting out and going and talking to people about what we're doing. Talking to say our Southern Brown Bandicoot team, who we're trying to get there project up and running at the moment so that involves um, creating a corridor between populations here in the Mount Lofty Ranges Adelaide Hills area to get them to link up um, so that could involve putting some tunnels under roads putting in some new vegetation connecting those areas so that we can connect them to then breed and then increase their population and then get them off the threatened species list or at least lower their classification here in South Australia so that's one thing. <laughs> that would be so good. I mean, we used to have eight bandicoot species in South Australia and now that's our last one. So mm. fantastic that people are working towards, you know, trying to save that last one. Yeah, and it's because of your little guy, Milo, um, that I'm here talking to you now because <laughs> <laughs> it was part of something we did together. So, yeah. Yeah, 100% with Jasmine Packer and the Bandicoot yeah. um, uh, band- Bungalow Project. Actually, Milo came to us from... Uh, it was Cleveland Wildlife Park. Mm. He... Uh, he was thrown from a pouch. Uh, he, he was a wild, wild animal, and they found him in a Tasmanian devil enclosure. Wow. And thought that's probably not an awesome place for a baby helpless bandicoot. Um, so they gave you us could a call. Milo, and not Lucky. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know where Milo came from, um, but um, yeah, they called us up, and Tam raised him from a little tiny. Uh, I got a photo of him online. He's you can sit in your hand. He's, and they're quite golden colour when they're little. Mm. Beautiful little critters, and and now he's. Yeah, living up there with a bandicoot. Uh, with, uh, sorry, with a with a bet on. <laughs> so, um, now you've got a, a bit of a background in tourism. Yes. And you've mentioned a lot of these national parks that you're involved in. Do you think tourism is um, maybe a way of the future to raise money to protect uh, some of these environments, to do education for people to come and uh, learn about some of these areas and maybe the more they learn, the more they may want to protect them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my boss, my CEO, Ian Derbyshire, he's English. He comes from Yorkshire. He immigrated over here many, many years ago. (laughs) Um, And he used to work in quite high corporate roles. Um, And when he finished up with his last role, the job for our our organisation was up. He thought, you know what, I want to do my bit for Australia. I want to help protect all these animals. I'm sick of hearing them all disappearing. And I want to actually try and stop that. So... That's someone from Australia that's come here, wants to save it and protect it. So why can't we do that with tourism as well? And not only international tourists, why not interstate and intrastate? So I might go up to the Murray River National Park and see that they've got the Regent Parrot up there and go, I want to do my part to help save that parrot or I want to do my part to save the turtles. So it's all about getting the information out there. And then hopefully people latch onto it and go, yes, I'm going to do my bit. I'll donate, I'll volunteer, I'll do something. 
anything's better than nothing. So it's all part of it. Mm. I agree. Yeah, a lot of people want to get involved, but they don't know where to start. Yeah. You guys have a great approach because you're looking at national parks. So you're looking at habitat because I think a lot of people are animal focused. They they know the world's not right. They know, um, you know, they just only have to watch the news or go out and look at some farmland to know that things aren't um, awesome when it comes to biodiversity. And a lot of people want to get involved with animals, which is great, don't get me wrong. But uh, without the environment, without habitat, without, you know, conservation areas like national parks, we don't have the animals so yeah. it's great if you can inspire people to get interested in um you know the whole the whole kit and caboodle the whole the whole ecosystem yeah so from a tourism point of view say 10 years ago the focus for tourism in australia was the rock the reef and the roo the rock the, the reef. rock the reef and the roo okay the so, three r's yeah you would come to australia to go see the, the reef you'd go see the rock and then you'd go and see a kangaroo it's still very much that way now but it's probably switching more to animals. So we've got a huge Chinese market that is coming to Australia, South Australia, Um, so Kangaroo Island. Everybody goes there to go see kangaroos and koalas, especially Chinese, because they love their animals, they love their food, they love these high-class experiences. So it's all about just shifting mentalities and getting everybody to think a little bit more outside the box to get them on board to help promote the right messages to help save them makes sense a lot of people come over too because they they live in cities they don't get to see stars and they just mm. want to get out to the outback you know yep. that's the thing that draws them is i just want to get out to where there's nothing where i i, I can look for miles and i don't see people um, you don't have to go that far to get that kind no. of experience either that's that's the sad thing i guess people that are very city centric they don't realize you only have to go 150 200 kilometers you don't have to go all the way out to the flinders mm. um i mean of course go to the flinders it's beautiful but <laughs> yeah no but you're quite right yeah. actually i just want to know we, we have the three cues here at animals anonymous headquarters we've got quals quokkas and koalas sorry carry on <laughs> so, <laughs> oh dear so how's that spelled? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> Someone was here the other day talking about quals and that they've got a Canadian accent and every time they'd say... Because sometimes people come from overseas, they know more about our wildlife. <laughs> yeah. like people like Steve probably knows more about uh, a lot of our wildlife than some of the people that live there their whole life. Um, Test me. Okay. No, don't. All right. no. <laughs> after, after, yeah. Um, and she was talking about qual- every time she mentions quals to people with her Canadian accent, people are like it's pronounced koala. <laughs> don't even know what a qual is. <laughs> it's close. Uh, it's it's pretty. It is pretty close. Um, they eat similar things. <laughs> Not. No. Yeah. That's <laughs> um, no. That's great. So, how long have you been with this organisation for? Um, so. Officially, I've been with the organisation probably since the start of the year. Yep. Um, but having known that I had turtles, I've helped out with articles about turtles as they've started to ramp up into this turtle project that we're trying to do at the moment. So back in March last year, I did my first piece. I got my turtles out and we did a photo shoot with the Sunday Mail and started talking about we need to help these guys and we need to do it now before there's none left. So... Um, unofficially, I've been around for a while. <laughs> Great idea. Press releases are fantastic, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. And now the internet. You think the internet plays a big role too in promoting what you do? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it connects people, but it's grabbing their attention, I think. There's so much information out there now, isn't You know, there? you get on Facebook and you scroll and you scroll and you scroll. You've actually got to grab people's attention because mm. they just scroll now. Um, it's like trying to see what mum's posted on Facebook this week. 
You think, oh, I actually have to go and find mum because it doesn't show up in my newsfeed anymore. <laughs> it's full of animals now. Yeah, it's full of animals. It's full of you guys. <laughs> um, so you said you worked in tourism previously. Yeah. Um, am I allowed to ask where, what area you worked in? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up um, working in a marina on the Mo River down at Murray Bridge. Um, so my parents run the marina and I grew up doing houseboat hire and all those sorts of fun things, such a fun job. And I thought, you know what, I want to do this. This is going to be great. So I went to Flinders Uni. I did a Bachelor of International Tourism, had lots of fun. And then I went back and I, I, I chose specifically to stay in my area. I wanted to stay promoting, talking about, celebrating the Murray River. And of course, there's not very many jobs in that <laughs> if you want to be um, more tourism development focused, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and fortunately, um, at the time, the tourism development manager for the Murray River Lakes and Coorong region, as it is called now, um, had stepped out. So my mum was on the board and they just needed someone to help fill in a bit of time and just do some of the admin stuff. So they were like, hey, come and help. So I did that for about 18 months. <laughs> awesome. Um, and learnt a lot met a lot of wonderful people and it's funny how some of them are all coming back into this now so it's all connected um, it is all connected yeah <laughs> um, and then after that finished up I went back to working for my in-laws on the ferry so um, I'm a ferry operator by trade <laughs> get out of town <laughs> you might be the first ferry operator on the show I wouldn't no, doubt that. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no, you don't think so? No, there would have been loads. <laughs> There's lots of us. There's there would have been loads. 50 of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's very cool. Back to the, to the foundation. Mm. How do you guys like decide where you're going to put your money? Yeah, so we've sort of changed in the last 12 months. So we used to get a pool of money. So it might be from the New South Wales government or might be nationally where it's come from or whatever corporates anything and then we would put that out as a grant application portal so people could apply and say right I want five thousand dollars to build a yellow foot rock wallaby enclosure in my backyard or <laughs> whatever does that happen often yeah <laughs> um and it used to be lots of little small grants going out to lots of small little things and um, we sat back and we looked at where the money was going and I think we found out that most of it was actually going to painting lighthouses. And we thought, well, that's not really our mission. That's not what we really want to be doing. So we sort of cut back on where the money was going for a little while and now we've changed our approach. So we will go to, um, here in South Australia, we went to the Department of Environment and Water and said, look, what are your species that you're trying to save? What ones do you want some help on how can we help how can we work together to actually achieve something um, and at the time I think it was Sandy Pritchard was the CE for you and she said look everybody's doing yellowfoot rock wallabies everybody's doing this why don't we look at southern brown bandicoots and Moriva turtles and so my boss took that away and here we are today going cool that's what we're going to do in South Australia um, and in New South Wales it's the same they go and talk to the New South Wales government and they say look we'd love you to work on this so it's just branching out and we're slowly breaking through to some of the other states as well so mm. yeah being less New South Wales centric which is great. <laughs> That's really good so if people want to get involved mm -hmm. is there ways that people can get involved? Yeah so um, if you want to be involved with our projects contact us of course 
by all means or contact the groups that we're working with. So for bandicoots, we're t- working with the Sturt Upper Reaches Landcare Group. Um, for turtles, we're working with Ricky Spencer and Mike Thompson, who are our turtle experts. Um, so they work for the Western Sydney University. Um, and there's a whole group of people from different universities that work on that, but they're our main two contacts at the moment. Um, so maybe talk to us <laughs> and then we can field the way through. Um, but if you want to get involved in other ways, go and volunteer with your local Friends of Parks group or your Landcare group or um, Animals Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So um, the turtles here in the Murray River, are they threatened? <laughs> they are. Um, so back in about the 80s, Mike Thompson went and did a study of turtle numbers along the river. So he pulled up at a couple of locations in Victoria, New South Wales, followed the Murray-Darling Basin sort of thing, and looked at the numbers. So he'd catch them, take their measurements, maybe notch them, that sort of thing. So you've got a record of what turtles you've caught. You know you're not catching the same one over and over. (laughs) And he was like, right, so the numbers are, say, 20 in this lagoon down here. A couple of years later, they came back and did the same thing. And over the last 20 years, those numbers have been dropping. So then they have to sit back and go, okay, why? What's happening? Why aren't there turtles here? Is it just that they don't like this area? Is something eating them? Um, You know, all of the things that go through your mind when something's not working the way it should. Um, So what they found out is that foxes, we love foxes, don't we, guys? (laughs) No. Um, Foxes have become so good at detecting where... Um, turtles are going to lay their eggs so they can sniff them out once they're already in the ground or they will kill a mother as she's going to lay her eggs. So turtles are not getting back into the Murray River. We're losing our breeding population because it takes a turtle 10 years to get to maturity. Um, So if we don't start to do something now, we may not have any in 20 more years. So our plan of attack to try and resolve this issue is um, a couple of different projects but the one that I'm really keen on at the moment is um, a breeding program within schools here in South Australia so they're actually doing the first pilot in Victoria this breeding season so breeding season for turtles is the November month they'll start laying their eggs in the start of November the eggs will then incubate over the Christmas New Year period and then they'll come out to hatch in late January So what we're doing is we're going out, we'll find eggs in the local area. So if, say, it's the Manham Primary School that's taking part or the Morgan Primary School, we'll go to the Morgan area. We'll collect eggs that we can find in the native state, um, incubate them in the school over the Christmas holiday period. And then when the kids come back to school, it'll be about time for the eggs to hatch. So we'll get to see the eggs hatching. They might keep the little turtles for a little while feed them up a little bit, maybe measure them, see how fast they grow, maybe release the ones that grow a bit faster because they're a bit more high up in the chain of order, (laughs) release them, say, halfway through the year and then keep the others until about this time of the year and then put them back into the river. So we're eliminating that critical time of year or critical period where they're getting pecked off by foxes or birds as they're trying to get back to the water. And then hopefully in 10 years' time, there'll be lots of turtles. <laughs> oh, the baby turtles. That would be great. Yeah. That would be good. Um, so the schools that we're working with, um, they're all really enthusiastic. So I've only got four at the moment and I'm hoping... So 
for South Australia, we'll be doing it in this time next year, in 2019. Um, and then I would love to see it roll out to whoever wants to take part in 2020. And why not? It's mm. going to be an amazing year in 2020. I'm sure there's lots of things happening. I hear rumours that tourism wants to do 2020 Year of the River, so it could all come together. That sounds good. Is there three turtle species that you're working with? There are three turtle species that we could be working with. Um, we're mostly focusing on long necks and short necks. Yep. Um, classically, the broad shells are lower in numbers anyway, and from Mike and Ricky's research, they don't currently see that there's much of an effect on them as much because they are a rarer species um, and they also nest at a different time of the year. So whereas the long necks and short necks nest in November, the broad shells nest about Easter. Um, so there's not as much of an issue. I'm not 100% sure on that one, but um, that's they're, not they're their focus. They're a massive turtle, the broadies. The mm. biggest freshwater turtle in Australia. They get as big as a bin lid, they tell me. Yeah. That, have you seen any really big broadshell turtles? I, 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 can't, I couldn't tell you what type it was. When I was working on the ferries probably five years ago, so I used to work down at Wellington, and so if you're familiar with Wellington, you know that on the Tail and Bend side there's a bit of a causeway and wetlands on one side and dairy flats on the other. And one day my husband and I had come off the ferry, we weren't even working on the ferry that day, and we were driving towards Tail and Bend, and there's this big turtle walking across the road. And I didn't even see it. I was driving. And I just swerved thinking, oh, it's a water hen. Someone's hit it. Poor thing. And husband goes, no, no, turn around. That was a turtle. I want to <laughs> I want to check this out. So we get turn around and get out the car. And it was big. Like, he would have been close to bin lid size, um, whichever species he was. So my husband actually got out the car, picked him up, carried him over the other side of the road to wherever, which side he was facing. And then we got in the car and off we went. <laughs> um, another turtle experience I've had on the ferry <laughs> one day I've, I'm working on an afternoon shift so it'd be 5 o'clock in the afternoon sort of thing and I get this um, fish guy come across so he's got a ute with a big cool van on the back and he goes down to Meningi and gets fish and then takes it back to Adelaide or Strath or wherever and he gets on the ferry he gets out, he opens up the back and next thing I hear him throw something in the river of course you don't normally watch what people are doing while you're directing other cars on. So when I finally get back to the other end to start driving across the river, he comes over and he says, I saw, I found a turtle on the side of the road out by the Salt Creek, um, Salt Lake, sorry, on the side of the road on the way to Meningi. Nowhere near the river, poor thing. I didn't want it to get run over. So I picked it up, put it in the cool room. So it's cooled down and it's just gone into a bit of a hibernative stance. And then I've just thrown it in the river when I've got here and I thought, oh, the poor thing, that'd be a rude shot. But <laughs> that was a big one too. Like he would have been almost been lid size. So they are around. That's so funny. You've got to be careful picking up the, um, like the eastern long neck. Mm. They've got that, that fluid or smelly defence mechanism they mm. expel from their cloaca area. And it's disgusting, um, and it, it's really hard to get out of your it car. Stays on you for weeks. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that was the what my husband picked up with our picking up and moving across the road because mm. he did say that it, it looked like it had peed itself. So maybe that was the type that it was. It could have been. I don't know if broadies do it. They're in the same genus, the broadshells. But um, mm. but what else does it? Olive pythons and water pythons. Any any water animals really do it. I find like even um, days of working with anacondas and things like oh, yeah. they're the same. If if you get scented on by an anaconda, you you might as well throw your clothes away. But yeah, water pythons, 
Yeah, they all smell really bad for some reason. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the grass snakes in the UK, that was one of their mechanisms, was, was to scent on you, and that just stunk for ages. So it's, rude. Yeah, it's very strange. But that turtle that you rescued from the road, that you, you moved it to the side of the road that it was facing, mm. it was actually facing the other t- so- way. Uh, when you went past it, you spun it with your hair. So you only put him where he started. <laughs> he possibly <laughs> ran back the other way, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> poor thing. <laughs> and then he just turned and went, oh, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next car came along yeah. and did the same thing. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, so future projects, you've hinted at a few coming up. Um, is, it a, is it a growing organisation? You feel, you feel like, I mean, you're bigger in the eastern states, aren't you? If, you? if I was from the eastern states, I would have known who you guys were, I'm sure. Yeah, probably. I would like to say so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then when we were at the World Environment Fair, like you guys were, people were coming up to me. That was the first thing I'd done. That was the first public thing I went out and was talking to people about what we do. And there was people coming up to me going, oh, we love you guys. We run an education program called Backyard Buddies. Um, I've heard of that. Yeah. That's you guys. That's us. There you go. <laughs> They're coming go. up to me because I had some of our Backyard buddy stuffed toys that you can purchase. And they were going, oh, I love these guys. My grandpa buys me one every year. And you're like, oh, see, so people do know about us. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just raising more awareness about who we are and what we do as we go along. So, yeah, but definitely in New South Wales we have a big, big footprint because we are the grants portal for most of New South Wales national parks and things. So if, say, the equivalent of Belair National Park wanted to get some money to re-veg or whatever, they'd, they'd come to us. Um, and then we work very closely with a number of large corporates over in New South Wales. So we run corporate days um, in a lot of places over there. So hoping to run some of them here. And I've been to talk to Belair National Park and I'm starting to talk to Onkaparinga it just started over the weekend, so who knows? We might get some up and running here. I'd love for there to be some here. That'd um, be great. Yeah. And both of those venues have Southern Brown Bandicoots. There you go. I must have known. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they're a funny animal. You, you sometimes see them out in the daytime. I mean, Blair mm-hmm. National Park, I've, I've seen them walking around in the daytime doing their bandicoot thing. It's amazing, you know. Like, so many of our animals are susceptible to cats and foxes, but these guys seem to just eke out an existence alongside them and sometimes get cocky enough to just walk around in the daytime. Yep. Hmm. So is it just the big national parks that you deal with or, or if someone had a block of land where these animals were and they wanted to help as well? Can they... um, yes. So if, say, John Smith down the road has some land that he'd like to, say, re-veg... Um, oh, you know John. <laughs> yeah, I know John. Yeah. <laughs> He's a good mate. <laughs> um, the, I think the way that it normally works is we'd like for them to have put their land under a um, heritage agreement here in South Australia because then you know that the land's not going to be um, bulldozed in five years mm. and that money is wasted and all that progress is lost. Um, but then by all means, we'd love to hear from you. If mm. nothing else, we'd love to hear from you and maybe we'll be able to find you the right portal for that money. So, mm. yeah. There's a water skink. Eastern water skink, just like He's big. He's a, he's a nice size, isn't he? You would have seen lots of those along the river. Yeah, a few. Um, I must say, guys, uh, to the listener, it is a little bit windy here. We're outside, so hopefully the wind's not interfering with this too much. 
So, so, so what do you do in your private life? You like to get out and see some of these places just for yourself. Obviously, you have a passion for the environment. Is there a particular interest that you really have? Like, I think turtles is one of them. Um, <laughs> I love my turtles. So <laughs> love your turtles. I was telling the guys earlier, I actually have two short-necked turtles myself. So one would be oh, 11 years old and the other one would be oh, four, maybe five, because we got him just before Christmas. Um, so Babies. Babies, yeah. <laughs> They're not even... Cl- well, one of them's close to maturity, I guess. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I love the Murray River, so I love getting out on the water. I love getting out on the back of a houseboat, even if it's just fishing for carp, just being out amongst it, having a bit of fun, Yeah, it's a special friends. place. It's yeah. a very special place, the river. Um, and I've been very fortunate that most of my jobs in my working life have had something to do with the river, so... I'm always out on the river if I was working on a ferry, of course. I did that for seven years. So, <laughs> Did you ever see the bunyip? We had Chris Kumatry on uh, the other week and he was telling us about the bunyip. Yeah, mm. I mean, mm. I could have. I mean, yeah. I've seen some interesting things floating along the river over the years. Um, it very well could have been a bunyip. You never know. Let's hope so. <laughs> and I used to do a lot of night shifts, so, you know, I should have been wary of the bunyip, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. A lot of unexplained phenomena. <laughs> Um, no, that's great. Look, it's really good what you guys do. And I look forward to learning more about what you guys do. Yeah, and I'd love to come back and update you in maybe a year's time about what's happening with the Turtle Project. Like, I like it. So you talked about bandicoots. We mm-hmm. talked about um, turtles. One of, the, one of the endangered animals that we have here in the Matlofty Ranges is the heath monitor. Yes. He's a, a goanna, you probably are aware. Yep. Uh, one of our 30 or so species of goanna we have in Australia. Um, and they're endangered here because they lay their eggs in termite mounds. And, of course, there's not a great deal of termite mounds no. around anymore because there's not much native bush around for a start. And, of course, people don't like termites being on their properties. Mm, close Although, to their houses. Close to their houses. <laughs> Although there are lots of termites, they're not all going to eat your house. Um, so people, you know, there was a big push to remove a lot of these mounds a few decades ago. And, obviously, people still do. But the big thing is that they lay their eggs in these mounds. They've got a very long incubation time. And that's uh, foxes, again, dig out their eggs and eat, um, eat, eat them. Kangaroo Island, just across the way, doesn't have any foxes. And mm. that's why there are a lot of heath monitors. So if anyone has been to Kangaroo Island, if you've seen a monitor, or goanna, we call them, same thing, uh, on the island, you've seen the heath monitor. That's the only one over there. And there's lots. And they're one of those camp-grown animals where they will come in and sniff around your campsites. Obviously, people must feed them. Please yeah. don't feed them, but people yeah. do. And, and it is great to see them come up like that. Because um, over here, I mean, I've, I've lived here my whole life. And I've only ever seen one heath monitor here in the Southern Lofties, where you go to Kangaroo Island in the warmer months, and they're everywhere. So um, he's one that would be great to, again, like you talked about with the breeding, mm. breeding populations in, you know, in captivity. Um, would, would be a fantastic thing to see more of those guys around where there's habitat. Yeah, well, that would be very similar to the turtles in that you only need to look after them during that very critical period mm. and then release them when off they go. And eventually there might be enough of them that the fox doesn't get them all. Yeah, it's just fascinating. Like these guys come at like the turtles, the heath monitor, they come out of an egg and they've got all they need. Like everything they need to survive is right there. I mean, a human baby, you just... Drop a human baby off in the bush. But actually, don't. They don't do very well. They don't do very well, yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. a good survival Science. Way. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, it takes a human 40 years before it's ready to move out of home these days. I'm 41 now and I wish I was still at home. <laughs> yeah, no, I would be if I could be. Um, so, <laughs> so that's a good one. I mean, I was talking to Mark Hutchison from the um, 
the South Australian Museum. He's the herpetologist there. And he was um, talking about ideas, maybe fencing off the mounds. Like if you know that a, a you know, if you yeah. track a female, you know, you know that she's laid her eggs in the mound. If the, if the mounds were caged off, that would give the, the young half a chance. Um, there's, there's some fascinating footage from Kangaroo Island of the babies coming out of the termite mound. And then carawongs and things are coming and pecking them off. Now, that's natural. Yeah. But even if you could protect them in, in a way, to, even from natural predation, just to get their numbers up again would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah and then it so, would look after itself. Mm. Yeah, there, there are people that do that with turtle mounds too. They'll put a bit of wire or something over the top so the fox can't dig in, but it's got enough spacing in it that a baby turtle can get out. And a turtle like these guys mm. they're born with enough nutrients and stuff that they probably don't need to eat for at least a couple of days so they can get to wherever it is that they're trying to get to and um, then eventually they'll be able to mm. go and find some food and stuff yeah I mean, I mean they're super cryptic in the environment too i mean you very rarely in fact i'd never have seen a baby goanna i mean when they get to a certain no. size they strut around like they own the joint yeah um, they're the largest terrestrial predator down here in southern australia so they they get quite cocky yeah um, but the young ones yeah super cryptic super paranoid and that's how you want them um, and that's probably the same with the turtles you know straight to mm. the water and and see you, you know, later hard to find yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. they're beautiful the little um the baby long neck turtles the, the, yes. the, the, the plaster on the underneath yes. part of the shell is bright red yep stunning animals that, that that fades in time but it does yeah Wonder what, what a strange adaptation. I wonder if that's like um, like a lot of the animals that have red as Danger, a warning. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe yeah. the birds flip them over, or they flip over. Yeah. I wonder if they do flip over easy if you disturb a baby. Yeah, that's a good question. And then with their long Thanks. neck, I mean, I know that when you if you know, well, I've had baby long neck turtles, and when they're wandering around in your garden and they do fall over, they can use their head and neck to quite easily flip themselves back again. Mm. So they could flip themselves that way and show off their red belly. So yeah, it's like a possum playing dead. Yeah, mm. yeah. And look, I'm red. I'm dangerous. But they'd have a harder time than like the the baby goannas because baby goannas are really quick to to get out the way of things unless they don't see a bird. But but yeah, turtles are not that quick, are they? To get no. on land. Well, just... I mean, mine. She will run very fast across concrete mm. if she wants to. Okay, get a bit of speed up. Get a bit of speed up, but it's not necessarily good for the bottom of the shell, of course, because mm. she's grinding it against concrete. And she lives in water most mm. of the time, so it can be a little bit soft. But they're, they're amazing in the water, though, aren't they? Yeah. Fantastic in the water. Mm. They, they tend to eat more meat, too, the long necks, because they can use their yes. long head and neck to, to catch fish and things. I always use the analogy when I'm talking to kids about short necks and long necks. If you're out in the oval and your mate's throwing tennis balls at you, if you've got little arms, you're not going to catch as many. A lot will fly past. If you've got big, long monkey arms, you'll catch a lot more. So that's your long neck turtles will catch a lot more meat. And your short necks, they'll catch a little bit, but they'll also graze on aquatic vegetation and things like that, too. Hmm. Yeah, so like my turtles, I feed them turtle food that you get from the pet shop. And it's great. It's made here in South Australia, so yay, support local. Good um, stuff. But, you know, they've got a, a veggie one and they've got a meat one. So you mm. mix it up every second, like every time I feed them, I switch it around. Boy, do they go for those meat ones fast. The, the veggie ones that are, maybe it's they can smell it in the water or something, but they don't go for them as fast as they do for the meat ones. I'm the same. <laughs> they don't make vegan turtle food. They make oh, vegan cat food. Really? Yeah. We, they make vegan cat. Food. They make vegan cat food. If cats um, were vegan, that would be pretty good for Australia. Yes. It would be. Yeah, that would be that's a good point. They, no, they eat all my orchids. I don't yeah, want that eating all my plants. They'd leave my lizards alone, though. Okay. 
Sorry, Emily. <laughs> oh, I guessed Emily. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same with um, parents having babies and saying, well, they must have vegan um, breast milk or whatever it is. Mm. There was a big issue about that last year, I think. And they got told off. It might have been in Switzerland, I reckon, from memory. Um, because there weren't enough nutrients in the vegan milk that they were giving the baby and the baby was malnourished and they got charged against... um, That's that's good. Yeah. How do you get vegan... Well, you you milk almonds. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. We had had, um, a doctor, Aaron Kamers, on the show. He's a paleontologist and he was talking about growing up and he was very lucky to have the education that he had. Um, uh, got him into learning about what he does, you know, paleontology, learning about evolution and all these kinds of things. And we talked about, like, some children grow up and they're not allowed to learn about evolution. And, um, mm. you know, you, you consider all the work of these scientists that stand on the shoulders of giants and, you know, over millennia they learn all this great information and we can piece together these amazing stories of the Earth's natural history. And then you've got these, these sects that just took, you know, these religions that don't enable the kids to learn those those things and and then that information is lost for those groups of people and it's and we we thought well is that a form of child abuse i mean that's probably drawing a long bow but i mean it Mm. mm. i think the reason that actually came up is because you directly asked the question do you think some religions um, that drive people away from science are child abuse (laughs) well yeah maybe maybe that was partially me I guess there's a difference between that and um, so like the Amish people who they just believe in their man-made ways sort of thing and they, they never know differently unless they go and visit the doctor because someone is actually sick and they need help. Mm. You're right and yeah I mean and I and it's a funny one because I mean big part of what we do here on the show is try to reconnect people with nature and, and we always make a point of saying, but we're not anti-technology. I mean, I still think we should explore space. Yeah. I still think we should explore other ways of um, finding energy and, and technology and, and things that we haven't even discovered yet. Um, but we should still reconnect with nature. We should have less of us. We should live closer to the land. We should try where we can to be self-sufficient, you know, have the best of both worlds. I think there's a way that that can be possible but we all get stuck in our own little area and instead, of, instead of stepping back and looking at the big picture and thinking what we can do. and They're all questions. There's no I think, answers. Uh, I think mm. we need to keep exploring space just to find the next planet for us to... Exploit. ...balls up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> is there anything else, Emily, that you would like to add? Oh, not really. I mean, if you haven't heard about us, go and check us out. We're the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife and we're trying to do some really cool... Um, projects here in south australia and nationally of course i did check out your website there's a lot of of big names are getting involved a lot of a lot of people i've heard of so that's really good yeah what is your website it's it's fnpw.org.au emily rose brown (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the show you you thought you were in trouble then when i used (laughs) to call name didn't you (laughs) i don't think anyone calls me by my full name (laughs) (laughs) Um, so guys check out the foundation for national parks and wildlife they do great stuff And thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Guys, thanks for listening.